Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Kabilis. Our next two episodes are going to be about autism and sensory processing disorder. There is so much information about sensory processing disorder, or SPD, that we had to split it up into two episodes. Now, when we are recording these episodes, and when I create the script for the episodes, sometimes I know when an episode is going to be two parts, and sometimes I don't. And a lot of our episodes are chock full of really, really, really great information. And I will say for a fact in preparation before we we started recording any of our episodes, I knew sensory processing disorder was going to be by far our most loaded episodes in terms of information and storytelling and all that. So without further ado, part one will cover these topics, which will be our episode today, causes and symptoms of SPD, how SPD impacts your physical and mental health, the triggers for sensory overwhelm, SPD in relation to trauma, and how to get assessed for SPD. In our next episode, we're going to talk about treatments for SPD, SPD impacting socializing, and SPD resources for adults. All right. And then we're, let's go ahead and start with causes and symptoms of SPD. All right. So um, when somebody experiences this, it's, it's the brain having trouble receiving, processing, and responding to sensory input. Okay. So there's multiple senses that, the, that all of us have, sight, sound, touch, smell, taste, vestibular, proprioceptive, right? The vestibular is the sense of movement and spatial relationship with the body. The proprioceptive is deep muscle pressure compared to surface level tactile experiences, for example. All right, so the nervous system is highly sensitive, over-responsive, and dysregulated. Sensory experiences can be painful and overwhelming. Mental health symptoms could lead to like panic attacks, meltdowns, chronic anxiety. Physical health symptoms might be pain, heat, buzzing in the nerves like hitting the funny bone but all over the body. Um, effect coordination and spatial awareness with body movement. This can also impact slow processing speed when learning new information and tasks. Uh, there's no official medical cause for SPD, um, and it's commonly associated with autism and also ADHD. Just like them, SPD is a spectrum, and so different people have different experiences with SPD over time. They can be over-responsive or under-responsive uh, to various sensory stimulus and experiences, and it varies from person to person. So there's a, a book that I read about sensory processing disorder, and I, I might not remember the book correctly. And, and if I don't, we'll, we'll reference it in part two. The book is called too loud, too fast, too bright, too tight, something like that. It, it's, a, it's four components with, the, with two at the beginning. And the book talked about how there's mild SPD, moderate and severe cases, very similar to autism. And, sounds like the spectrum. Oh, yeah. And, and the thing about SPD is if you have moderate to severe symptoms, you basically don't leave your home because mm. everything even things in your own house are causing physical and mental distress. Mm -hmm. So, it, it, you know, I would say for, for me, I'm for sure, I definitely have sensory processing disorder. 
I'm able to participate in daily life with medication to manage it. There have been times where my sensory processing needs are bad enough that I can't leave my home, but it's never gotten to the point where it's chronic. So I think it's a good book to help you to determine like where you are on the spectrum. And if you are on the moderate to severe end, you know, what steps you need to do to get help. Because it can be very disabling if it is on the moderate and severe end. I can imagine. Yeah. So the way that SPD impacts your physical and mental health, when it comes to your mental health, you'll have high anxiety, panic attacks, and meltdowns. You can also develop phobias such as fear of heights, crowds, loud noises, and vomiting. One of the episodes we're going to cover in the future is actually about the link to autism and phobias. And the number one cause of phobias for people with autism, as well as other neurodiverse individuals, such as those with ADHD, they get phobias primarily because of sensory processing challenges. Mm. And then there are physical health issues like pain, heat, and buzzing in the nerves, like hitting your funny bone. That tends to be my experience uh, if I know I'm having a really, really bad sensory day. You can also have impaired thought process processes and movement. So there was, I, I had, I can't remember if I talked about this when I was talking about meltdowns, but I remember in my first year of teaching, I had basically worked a full hour day of teaching and then had to stay at school to do some after school event. It was like back to school night, parent teacher mm -hmm. conferences, something along those lines. And I was fine all day. And then the next morning, my sensory issues were so bad I couldn't walk. And oh. it literally felt like I, I was maybe going about as fast as a grandma, because if I mm -hmm. took large steps, I thought I was going to have a meltdown. So it was my body mm -hmm. definitely screaming, like, go home and take a break. There's, uh, I look at, so... I'm not a person that that struggles with chronic physical pain. So I guess I, I can't speak 100% confidently that SPD and chronic physical pain are the same thing. What I will say is that when your nervous system is screaming from overwhelm or overstimulation and there's just no sense of relief, it can feel like I think it can feel like chronic pain in the sense that your body is in agony, whether that be emotional distress or physical distress, and, and your body just cannot find its way to regulate itself. And I would say the closest thing I could imagine having sensory processing disorder would be is like having a migraine. Because for those of you that have migraines, when you can't see, when your head hurts, like you don't have a choice but to sit in a dark room and wait it out. And there's basically nothing you can do. And, and I have personally felt that that's what I've had to do when I have bad sensory days. I just need to lock myself in a room, put a weighted blanket on and just ride it out until it's over. And sometimes it won't be over. It'll last for like days, weeks, months. It sucks. Wow. Um. 
the nervous system of someone with SPD has a very slow recovery time, even with ideal conditions. This means that a person with severe sensory overwhelm issues may be stuck in a state of overwhelm for days, weeks, and even months. So kind of reinforcing the point that I made earlier. And when you're stuck in that chronic overwhelm state, there's a feeling of powerlessness and anxiety about having to engage with the world over and over. And I will also say one of the ways that I dealt with my autistic struggles as a kid was through uh, mindfulness practices. So I was big into yoga and meditation and positive thinking, all of that good stuff. And it worked for a while. And then it didn't when I was an adult. Mm. And I can't even begin to tell you how powerless it feels to have none of your tools work, which ultimately means then you just collect a, a new set of tools and your toolbox gets bigger and more diverse. But in the mm. moment, it's it's so disheartening because you don't know mm. why your body is going through what it's going through. And you feel like you have this lack of agency to take care of yourself which then makes you very dependent on other people to take care of you. And if they don't know how to take care of you or they get frustrated with you, mm -hmm. it, the level of powerlessness is horrible. Mm. Um, other triggers for sensory overwhelm, any structure, any stressors, any structure, structure doesn't stress us out. Stressors that taxes, exhaust. Yeah. I know, well, I know, so it's like, I think the more chronically overwhelmed we get, I think regardless if you're neurotypical or neurodiverse, any lack of structure uh, creates more overwhelm. So we mm -hmm. cling to any sort of sense of structure that we can so mm -hmm. that we don't create more distress and pain for ourselves. So anyway, any stressor that taxes, exhausts, or burns out the nervous system is going to increase the likelihood of sensory issues coming coming up. So. A lot of times what people will use to describe autism overwhelm is the metaphor of what fills and drains your cup. And people with autism tend to be depleted quicker than mm -hmm. neurotypical people. So some mm -hmm. examples of these stressors are social anxiety, transition stress, school or work states, stakes, such as deadlines, applying for jobs, adult responsibilities like paying bills, compassion fatigue, burnout from an intense work period, also autism burnout, like masking in a neurotypical world, and getting stuck in rush hour. Anxiety is a sign that something in the environment is dangerous and needs to be removed. When it is not removed, then the anxiety will get worse. The problem also is that the... The dangerous thing can get removed and the anxiety will still be there and, and permeate. And it's that fight or flight response. And so the, the key is finding therapy like craniosacral or somatic therapy that teaches mm -hmm. the body to, to regulate itself so that when it does get triggered, it recognizes, oh, that dangerous thing isn't there anymore. I can calm down. And highly sensitive bodies really struggle with that. No, then that, that makes sense. It's a good way to think about that. Um, a person on the spectrum really has to go the extra couple of steps to 
A, I'm recognizing that this is happening. Um, B, um, this is what I'm doing while it's happening. And C, I need to train my body to know that it's over. Right. And that's, and that's why people with autism are so structured and so regimented. Because if you think about it, if you're in that chronic overwhelm state where you're feeling crappy for months at a time, of course you want to stay in your bubble so that you're not getting triggered. I, I think a, a, a comparison from like a neurotypical perspective is like if you have a knee injury and or a hip injury and mm. you're just constantly terrified of like too much movement or mm. too much strain standing up, like mm -hmm. you live in this constant state of fear of mm -hmm. what in my external environment is, is going to cause more mm -hmm. pain than I can't handle. And, and that's why I use, that's why I think SPD is so similar to chronic pain because mm. both physical conditions, it like teaches you to live in fear of the world around you mm -hmm. because you're, you're just in a place of suffering all the time. Right. And that need for control mm -hmm. is the, the only thing you have to feeling any sense of relief. And you know, and I think parents also can get very frustrated because, you know, if I think about my mom as an example, she said when I was a toddler, I, I had a meltdown 24 times a day and mm -hmm. she's removing all sorts of sensory triggers. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I removed everything. Why are you still crying? Right. Well, you know, if you think about it from the perspective of chronic pain, let's say you have a hip injury and you fall. Mm hmm. And I mean, that pain isn't just going to go away when you walk away from the trigger of that pain. Like, right. you're going to be feeling that pain for a really, really long time. And, you know, no matter what you do, like, it's it's not going to it's not going to go away. And and I think that that sucks for all parties because mm -hmm. there's just powerlessness all around of what can we do externally? and. I think that the real issue is, yes, you can modify the environment, but the problem really comes down to how is the body able to bounce back from that dysregulation? And mm -hmm. it takes certain types of therapy to teach the body how to do that. And you can't overcome that mentally. Mm. Interesting. Well, that's that a nice segue to the next segment. Can SPD be caused by trauma and can experiences of SPD also create trauma in the body? And the answer is yes, it can. Um, traumatic experiences could cause chronic sensory overwhelm. Sensory experiences could trigger a PTSD kind of situation or reaction and hypervigilance around perceived danger. So just like you were talking about um, with the, uh, the, the hip analogy, let's say that you have managed pain to uh, an acceptable threshold right? But you still remember that pain. You still remember that. And you could, you could fall into this, you know, phobia of like, I don't want to misstep and, and relive that intense pain again, which could be um, a, chronic, a chronic trauma. Um, so chronic sensory overwhelm can definitely create trauma and complex PTSD in the body, much like how any chronic illness can create anxiety over external conditions that can increase pain. And like you were saying, um, you live your life in fear of the world around you to the point where you're afraid to step out of your house. So when you experience sensory issues your entire life, your nervous system gets programmed in a permanently hypervigilant state, 
and it becomes hard to break out of that because it's trained to be on the lookout for any sensory triggers, which may seem like they come from everywhere. And chronic sensory and overwhelm can also de develop phobias, leading to fears of heights, um, loud noises, crowds, vomiting, for example. And somatic therapy can be a great way, though, to retrain the body to exist in a regulated state, which can feel foreign to the body at first. But again, mm -hmm. like you're saying, it's training the body. Okay, the fear is over. Um, it's time to to come to another place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My somatic therapist said that the body, no matter what our body stories are, you know, how much trauma we have endured physiologically, emotionally, whatever, our body is capable of remembering what it's like to bounce back from adversity. And, and that's very true in the nervous system. And I think the, the issue with an autistic nervous system is when you are getting bombarded by sensory triggers all around you with no break, not even in your own home, your body doesn't even get a chance to rest mm -hmm. to the point where it can recover mm -hmm. and go, oh, okay, I can bounce back. And over time, that wears down the body's internal memory of I mm -hmm. can bounce back. And I think part of it, you know, part of somatic therapy is being able to do some nervous system healing work to let mm -hmm. go of that trauma. Mm. But the other part of it is, is also being very real and honest with yourself and saying, there are things in my environment that are just not working. And this mm -hmm. is really important for adults with autism, because when you've been taught to mask your autism, you're almost basically trained to endure pain as a way to fit into neurotypical society and, and to cover recover from that, that pain, you have to really be honest with yourself and say, are these factors in my life, be it related to work, my home life, my romantic relationships, whatever they may be, is this conducive to my physical and mental health? Mm. And, and I think when we're trained to mask, we don't know what that means. And that process of unmasking teaches us to recognize what our limits are. And that can be a really uh, cathartic and vulnerable process, but it's often really important for mm -hmm. healing. Definitely. So I definitely think that living in a perpetually chronic state of sensory overwhelm can create long-term trauma in the body, particularly if sensory stress and anxiety has happened since you were a toddler you know, as I said before, your nervous system is triggered so often with no relief that it doesn't know how to exist any other way. Mm -hmm. uh, I am going to talk about my personal experience with sensory processing challenges when we talk about assessments. I believe we're covering that in this episode. Brett, what was your son Josh's experience with sensory overwhelm and sensory processing challenges? Well, sometimes, you know, as a, as a parent of an autistic child, I heard the, the uh, incredible stories of like children on the spectrum who can't take showers, for example, because the, um, just the pressure of the water hitting their head, it causes pain, causes physical pain. Now, Joshua never had to experience that, uh, fortunately for him, but he did have um, other sensory issues. And may, most of those around surrounded the idea of um, scratchiness and clothing 
right? So he, you know, he complained about how his clothes were too scratchy. Every time we bought him new clothes, we had to cut tags off the, the back because that would be an irritation. So those kinds of things. Um, otherwise, it, there wasn't any major um, sensory processing challenges other mm. than that. It's funny you bring that up because showers are a very important part of my sensory soothing mm. routine. And mm -hmm. I love hot showers. Like my mm. husband will get into the shower with me and he's like screaming in pain because of how hot the shower is. Yeah. Um, but I love it. Like if I'm having a bad sensory day, I need a hot shower. So I, I've yeah. never, yeah, I've never really struggled with the um, pounding of the, the beads of water on my, on my body. And then yeah. the but other thing I'll, oh yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, that goes to the saying that when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, right? So it, it's just yeah. such a big spectrum. Well, and, and it really shows how sensory processing disorder is also a spectrum because yes. one person who has a sensory issue with showers, it might not impact another autistic person who has that struggle. Right. And, and I'll also say with clothes, I... I do remember being really sensory defensive with clothing when I was a little kid. Really not so much like as an older, like preteen, teenager, young adult. I don't know if it's because of that age group's desire to be into fashion. But when I started become working as a teacher, I I was really picky about my clothes because I noticed that if I was having if I was tired or if I, you know, had just your usual physical aches from like fatigue mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. you know, a bad sensory day, a pair of comfy pants made the world of difference for me to get through my job. And so, you know, I never thought I'd be the type of person who is like, I'm going to throw away all my jeans and my mm -hmm. hard starchy clothing for like, you know, athleisure sweatpants. But mm -hmm. I did. And it made a huge difference when it came to my ability to just show up at my job so you know i really modified my whole wardrobe so that it was comfy clothes now granted teaching kind of has that clothing flexibility which is really nice and even more so if you're an art yeah. teacher depending um, on where you work right yeah and so i i think the reason i bring this up is like some people will have those sensory processing challenges their whole life and other mm -hmm. people may grow out of those sensory struggles when they, you know, they build that window of tolerance in their nervous system, or because there are other stressors in their day, like working a job, mm -hmm. then you build more of that intolerance, like, you know, or depending on, you know, the job you take, like sometimes you have to wear a uniform that just doesn't work with your body's right. needs. So, so you know, sensory processing issues are, are an ebb and a flow. Mm. They, they never really stay put. And if they do, you know, I don't want to say it's rare, but it's just part of the spectrum of mm. having sensory processing disorder. And I, I think the other thing that you, you brought up um, indirectly, but it's an important point, is that as a person on a spectrum grows up and and experiences these different things they come to understand their body and their needs of their body 
and um, how they how they think of things, and so they seek solutions, right? So for your your case, it was oh, I'm uh, this is going to be a, a hectic day. I need comfy pants, right? So it's just mm-hmm. anticipating those things and um, alleviating uh, potential triggers in their day and learning what those triggers are. Yeah. So we're actually not going to cover this in our next two episodes, but I. Sensory processing disorder, if you're a parent on the autism spectrum, that that's, I mean, pregnancy, hormones, having a child, like any sort of like biological changes your body goes through it, like especially like puberty when you're a kid, any of those things can trigger sensory processing issues. And And what I will say to any autistic adult listening to this is like, if you develop a sensory issue in your adulthood that you never had as a kid. It's just part of the aging process of being on the autism spectrum. And it's okay. There, It's not that you're less of a person. It's not that the therapy you had right. when you were younger didn't work. It's, you know, it, it, if your parents buy into the whole, like, you're cured of autism, you know, it's not like you're a problem. It's just what the autistic body is. And so it's important that we understand our bodies generally as well as like our unique bodies and just be prepared to accommodate for it when we know that we're going to enter a big life milestone that is going to put a lot of physiological strain on us, like especially pregnancy and parenting. Mm -hmm. Well, and then then just going on to uh, something else that you said that was a really good point is that um, the solutions that you had early in life might not be the same solutions that you have now, right? So in other words, um, those um, modifications or adjustments that you've made earlier might still work, or you might need to have some other modifications or adjustments. And I think that makes parents feel like a child is going backwards in their quote-unquote autism recovery. But it's just important to keep in mind that, like, the world is overstimulating and it's okay Mm -hmm. if something that worked once doesn't work now. It means you find another solution. You know, Mm -hmm. the neurodiverse nervous system, it's it's not a one and done like, oh, we fixed this problem. It's never going to come back or, oh, we fixed this problem. It's never going to have any new problems. It's just the nature of a highly sensitive nervous system. So I don't want parents to feel discouraged if there is that feeling of like, oh, we've made so much progress and Mm. we had this tool that worked, but it didn't. And I think the best attitude for that is just have really good creative problem solving. Have Mm -hmm. a conversation with your child of like, how does this Mm -hmm. make you feel and what do you Mm -hmm. want? that is going to make you feel good and instead of feeling frazzled and frustrated because mm-hmm. it feels like this endless loop of my child is never going to get relief mm-hmm. and if you think about you know being an adult like we've had to constantly find coping skills for a variety of challenges that we never had when we were kids so right. the same applies for you know dealing with an autistic child we 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 always need to develop our toolbox and we need mm. to update it and, you know, we need to revisit it or, or add new mm-hmm. tools. 
You know, it's it's not something that's just a one and done. Here's your package set of tools and we're all good. All right, great point. All right, so how did Josh's sensory overwhelm impact your sensory overwhelm? Um, well, the other thing is, you know, through this whole process, we're kind of learning about Josh and we're trying to be open to his needs and to make adjustments, especially with scratchy clothes and things like that. Um, how it impacted me, I don't know that it really impacted me because really he had kind of mild issues surrounding this. Um, but then we, we came upon some other solutions that, uh, were not first and foremost, we had to learn about this. Right. And so some of the, um, soothing kind of solutions we found that was not really, um, foremost on our mind was, um, something that you mentioned earlier was like a weighted blanket. Right. So somehow, you know, Joshua got, um, a soothing sensation from just having this, this pressure. Um, and sometimes he would, he would gravitate to that. And sometimes he wouldn't, um, it just kind of depended. We also got him, um, this, this kind of like, imagine a large gecko stuffed toy that was heavy. And so if he was, you know, uh, fidgeting or if he was just in a stressing kind of, kind of way, we could put that on his lap and sometimes that helped too. Mm -hmm. Right. Having that, that physical sensation of just, um, pushing down, like, like getting a hug, I guess. How did that sensory stress on his end and maybe even a little bit on your end and your ex-wife's end, how did that impact your parenting style? Oh, we just had to be open to his needs. I mean, I, we had to listen to him. We had to learn how to listen to him. And if he wasn't verbally expressing himself, especially in the very beginning when he's in um, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you know, they're not typically um, a person on the spectrum is not a really good at communication early on. So we had to really be um, aware of what he was trying to tell us, even though he wasn't verbally communicating. Like, so if he's tugging at his shirt, for example, um, you know, he's expressing that it's, it's scratchy as opposed to I'm just irritable. Right. So I, we had to figure out what the difference is. Um, you know, is he, is, is this, uh, one thing that's going on throughout the day, or is this a buildup of things that's going to lead to a meltdown? So we're kind of looking at, you know, um, the accumulation of, of these kinds of processes. So it's just, it's just being kind of aware of what, um, Josh was doing and, and what he was trying to tell us. Mm -hmm. Did, let's see. Did you help Josh get assessed for sensory issues during occupational therapy or other mm -hmm. types of autism therapy? And if so, what did you discover? Not as far as SPD. I mean, mostly the therapy that we had was managing his meltdowns, right? That was the big thing, but it wasn't really, well, and then I guess, you know, coming up with um, solutions that would alleviate stress, like the weighted blanket, um, um, you know, the opposite maybe of, of looking at it's like, okay, when you feel stress and overwhelm, um, is there a place that you can go to, to, you know, kind of regroup. So, and, and that would be going to a place like in a corner and they had this, you know, this is what I love about preschool because they have a lot of flexibility of what to do. And so they kind of built this little structure in the corner that was like a fort. 
And so Joshua would go inside this fort, they'd had a, a blanket over it, and he would just chillax there, right? So mm -hmm. removing some sensory, maybe the bright lights, like fluorescent lights, for example, can be a trigger for some kids. Um, and if you're irritable um, or paint, you know, if, if the room is just bright red and you have all of these um, fluorescent lights, I mean, that could be, that could lead to sensory overload. So his, his thing was, you know, I'm feeling stressed out, not that he could communicate that, but teachers would see the signals that this kid's irritated. Um, why don't you go into your room and we'll check back on you in a few minutes, that kind of thing. So removing, learning how to uh, remove some of those uh, sensory overload elements was helpful. Mm -hmm. I'll also add to that. One of the most powerful things I was taught as an adult is the ability to have choice and autonomy when you are stimulated. Because I think when you, mm. you know, and I'm not faulting anybody who, you know, has this belief, like, here's a person who's different and you have to you have to mask your autism in order to survive in a world that isn't accepting of who you are. Mm -hmm. I think it's just like, that's just generationally like where we are. There's a lot of fear and a lot of maybe, I don't, uh, maybe not as much creative problem solving on like, okay, well, how could this be possible? So I think that even though I was open about my autism, very proud of being autistic. I was very aware of my body's needs. I think because I had a lot of, we'll call it somatic reinforcement from my therapy as a child, I didn't even know I had the option to explore choice. It hmm. was just, what are ways that I can soothe myself so that I can show up into the world and be a fighter and, you know, brave the storm. And, uh, and I, and I don't, I think it's a subconscious choice because I, mm -hmm. I don't think it was ever this, like, I want a normal neurotypical life that everybody else has. And it wasn't until I started taking a uh, somatic therapy treatment that my therapist was like, Let's let's get you to be reflective of what sort of choice and autonomy you have mm -hmm. to live in a world that is overstimulating. Mm -hmm. And I had never felt like I had that kind of freedom. And so that was a big reason why I left teaching because I I teaching was extremely overstimulating for my nervous system between, you know, the social mm -hmm. input and the the sensory input and my my therapist was like you know you need to be able to work in a place where you are the one in charge of controlling what your environmental stimuli is what your mm -hmm. social stimuli is and mm -hmm. i had that choice because i want to go into private practice counseling and support the autism community so but but that was a huge motivator for me to leave teaching was like, I didn't know I had that autonomy. And then there were other things that started to happen, like exploring stimming as a way to soothe my sensory overwhelm, fidgeting, having a weighted mm -hmm. blanket. Like mm -hmm. these were all things I didn't even give myself permission to explore because mm -hmm. I was told that I, it's not that. I had people in my life that said those things are not an option, but when you don't see people around you using those tools, 
when the adults in mm -hmm. your life are not encouraging you to use those tools, you just don't think of it as an option. You know, it's mm. it to me, it's the difference of like growing up in a family that encourages you to go to therapy versus like you're going to deal with your emotions by bottling it up. Mm. And and right. I think that that made a really big difference in my the quality of my health is just feeling like. Within these feelings of mm -hmm. I, I don't have any autonomy. I actually do have autonomy, but when you are raised in an ableist society, you believe that you don't have autonomy. Mm. And I think it's important to to raise kids to believe that because then they're going to have more resilient, neurodivergent, friendly coping skills that are going to get mm -hmm. them through, you know, so many parts of life. And then I think it goes back to that whole debate of well, we tried this and it worked once, but it, it didn't work again. And that feeling of going right. backwards. Well, then what I would ask, you know, parents that are listening is how many of those tools that you're teaching your child to cope with, A, how many of them are neurodiverse friendly? And B, mm -hmm. how many of those skills actually resonate with your child? Does your child even enjoy using that soothing skill? Or is it something that, you know, a therapist prescribes because an mm -hmm. adult understands that it's helpful? Right, right. Especially if they're non-communicative, right? If, if they can't communicate like, you know, a, an adult, a child is going to have trouble to, to communicate, sometimes you just know. So you offer these tools and you have to be observant. Is this working? If, if it's not, let's try something else and just be open to that as a parent, I think. Yeah. What were Josh's sensory soothers? So like I said, the, uh, the sensory soothers for, for that would be to get out of um, the, the environment where he was feeling overwhelmed. Um, and then another sensory soother was uh, the weighted blanket for sure. Um, yeah, this, this doesn't have to do with anything for sensory necessarily, but, a, but you know, this has to do actually with a previous episode where we talk about meltdowns. A lot of times I knew when Joshua was overstimulated and he's crying and, um, you know, it, it's becoming um, emotionally just overwhelming for all of us. Uh, a thing that we would do would be to um, try to break that, right, to break that idea, to break it up, to, um, to distract him. And so I would have um, puppets that I would use and um, I would do different voices with, with puppets. And sometimes that was, that was effective as well. Mm -hmm. I think another challenge that a lot of children with sensory processing struggles deal with is like, and I'll even say this as an adult, like my sensory overwhelm happens so fast. I go from a zero to a 10 in a second. Mm. And, and I, I almost compare sensory overwhelm. I, I have a poem about this, which will be on our website that I compare it to like eating spicy food because the spice hits so suddenly and so mm. quickly and it takes forever to go away. Mm. And no matter how much milk you drink or water mm -hmm. or whatever, like the spice is there and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. And one thing that my therapist and I are working on in somatic therapy is trying to like slow down the nervous system's reaction time mm -hmm. so that I can sense the buildup Mm. of when I'm about to experience sensory overwhelm. So, you know, so then that way I can go, oh, 
I noticed this thing is overwhelming me and here's mm -hmm. what I need to do. And in my opinion, I think that there are coping skills for preventative measures for sensory overwhelm. Then there's the coping skills for, you know, during an overwhelm episode and then coping skills for, you know, when you come down from that overwhelm, like what do you do so you don't go back into that state of overwhelm? Mm -hmm, but I mm -hmm. cannot begin to emphasize how hard that all that process is mm -hmm. when your nervous system reacts so extremely to a sensory struggle. So not mm -hmm. only is it hard for the person, you know, living with SPD to even recognize like they've hit their limit because usually the the overwhelm symptoms are a sign that you've gone way past your limit. Mm. But then also the the support people don't even know what to do either because it happens so fast. And so that's why I think, you know, doing some sort of body-based therapy is so important mm -hmm. because that's that's the nervous system's way of going into fight or flight. It's that instantaneous, you know, it can't waste time building up because when you're highly sensitive and everything is a threat, you know, you need that instant reaction so you can just get out of there as soon as possible. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I will tell you, even as an adult, sometimes it's hard for me to gauge like when I'm hitting that limit. And and like I said earlier, with the walking thing, like sometimes I won't even know I hit my limit until the day after. So mm. I can do all these rigorous, intensive, horrible things to my body. Mm. And then the next day, you know, face the consequences for it. I call it a sensory right. hangover. Okay. Um, and so I think that it's just such an uphill battle for kids and adults with SPD to even let a caregiver know that they're mm -hmm. in an overwhelmed state. And, and you know, part of what's hard too is like when you're in an overwhelmed state, sometimes your channels of communication are just so blocked up. You can't even tell people sure. like, I need this. Or, right. or, you know, you can't physically take yourself to that destination that's going to mm -hmm. soothe you because you're so overstimulated. So right, right. It, it's hard. And I, I think I want to say this because I want parents to not feel bad about how hard it is. It's really hard to manage sensory processing disorder. Mm. So I'm going to ask you questions about um, treating Josh's sensory struggles in the next episode, since we're going to be talking about um, assessing for SPD in the last part. And mm. we're going to be talking about treatments in part two. So can SPD be a standalone diagnosis? SPD isn't recognized as a distinct medical diagnosis. In fact, it's not even included in the DSM-5, uh, but it is often diagnosed in, in, sorry, in conjunction. I can't talk today. I'm like butchering words. You're good. Um, often diagnosed with autism and ADHD. So much like how you think about Peter and Pete, Peanut butter and jelly, mm -hmm. as as a as a match made in heaven. Mm -hmm. Autism and, and sensory processing disorder, pretty much go hand in hand. Um, I think it's also important to bring up that uh, if you're getting workplace accommodations for sensory processing disorder, workplaces. Not that I don't think HR is going to like go down the whole like you know show me your DSM diagnostic stuff, but. If you are in a workplace situation 
and your work environment for whatever reason is asking for medical evidence that you have whatever you have, sensory processing disorder alone won't get you those accommodations legally. You need a sensory processing disorder diagnosis in addition to another diagnosis, most commonly autism and ADHD. But mm -hmm. if you have, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or I don't know, maybe schizophrenia might be another one. But it, mm -hmm. usually what I was told at the institute that assessed me for SPD is that you need to have another diagnosis in addition to SPD in order to get um, accommodations met. And, you know, I, I would also say, like, if you do have a standalone sensory processing disorder diagnosis, so let's say, for example, you know you have sensory processing disorder, but you have undiagnosed autism, or you can't afford an autism diagnosis because of a wait list or a, you know, steep price for it. Um, what you can do is you can go to a psychiatrist, tell them about your sensory processing disorder struggles. If you're meeting with a doctor and you're talking about sensory processing disorder struggles, as long as you have a medical professional that's backing you up, that's mm -hmm. enough legitimacy if it's a standalone issue. Right. Right. And that, that goes into uh, where you get a sensory assessment in the first place. So sensory issues might be determined during evaluation for autism and ADHD. Um, occupational therapies and therapists can do an assessment. And organizations that specialize in SPD, for example, the Denver Star Institute for Sensory Processing Disorder, which you're going to talk about, right? More in depth. So I'm going to talk about that more in episode two. What I will say, okay. what I what I really like about the Star Institute is that, or actually, I think I am going to talk about it because they were the ones that assessed me. But right, right. The Star Institute is one of the few organizations that I found online that support adults with sensory processing challenges in addition to kids. Right. And usually these organizations only support right. children. So the fact right. that I could find something that supported me as an adult was life-saving. Awesome. And so, yeah, contact the so those sources to determine the costs. Um, some organizations do take insurance and some do not. Um, and then they're going to create a sensory profile for you. And so how do they do that? Well, the client goes through a series of tests that evaluate which of the seven senses are um, impacted, soothing, agitating, and unresponsive, um, helps the client to avoid sensory triggers, and use sensory soothers to regulate the nervous system. Um, and they might put you on a sensory diet, which is a great um, metaphor, I think. So a sensory diet might be a list of sensory triggers for stress that the client must avoid. Um, when they can, for example, like those fluorescent lights that we've talked about, tools and exercises that the client can try in the office or at home to support nervous system regulation, tools and exercises that build up sensory tolerance over time, and this may require some accommodation and modification at home, school, and work. Mm -hmm. I'll, going back to the, uh, the whole thing about taking insurance, definitely call them in advance because I, I love the Star Institute, and I'm going to uh, talk about it in my next bit. But what I'll say is uh, I was like, oh, you do you take insurance? Because a lot of these, a lot, like pretty much a majority of my autism support services 
never took insurance. So I was thrilled right. to be at an organization that took insurance, but I was on That's Kaiser. Awesome. Right. And so they were like, oh yeah, we take every insurance except Kaiser. And I just like, hated whoops. that I was on Kaiser. Like I was right. like, why? I have insurance. And I, I spent yeah. so much money on things that were covered by other insurances because I was on Kaiser. Mm -hmm. So I was super happy to move to another district and get another insurance coverage. Um, cause I was, yeah. Cause I, I had to do like, what was it? Five or six sessions with the star Institute and had to pay out of pocket. And I was like, yeah. so close, so close to getting insurance right, right, right. covered for it. So anyway, um, so my story about my sensory processing issues and how I got sensory assessed, um, I did not have chronic sensory struggles until I was an adult. Um, before that, I had a lot of sensory struggles as a kid that were remedied doing various types of traditional autism therapies. I didn't struggle with sensory issues as a kid, teen, or young adult. I had a lot more struggles with anxiety related mm. to academics and socializing, but I, mm -hmm. I really did not struggle with sensory challenges. And I think a big part of it is I feel like I grew up in a relatively sheltered environment in my personal life. So my home life was very cushioned. Mm. And I mean, even, even going to college, I had a lot of things like, I, I feel like my my stressors were normal, but they weren't sending me over the edge and, and they certainly weren't um, sensory triggers. So mm. all that changed when I got my first job as a teacher, which was at the time of recording this uh, almost four years ago, I started to have major sensory processing struggles. Many of these struggles were things I had never experienced before in my life. There were also things that I struggled with that I didn't have an issue with when I was younger. So for example, when I was a high school student, I actually did attend Spirit Week pep rallies. I would be in the stands with all mm. of my peers. Mm -hmm. I I don't know how I did that. And I had no sensory struggles. Because mm. as you know, from being a teacher, pep rallies are the most right. overstimulating experiences. Absolutely. For even, like, you know, I would I would tell my coworkers about my sensory struggles as an adult, and they're like, "Oh, trust me, like I don't have autism, and I struggle with pep rallies." Right. Um. I I I I think that the the enjoyment of the pep rally is certainly the hype and the games and the fun, but I don't know many teachers who enjoy like supervising pep rallies for some a variety do and of reasons. Some don't. Right. Oh yeah. Well, I feel like I met more that that don't. And I think some also don't want to awesome. do it because they want to grade and <laughs> right, do their, right. do their teacher chores. So anyway, so, you know, I, I went to school dances. I went to the pep rallies. I went to football games. I had no sensory problems. Didn't even wear earplugs. Interesting. And then I became a teacher. I couldn't stand in a gym during a pep rally for two minutes without having a panic attack. And That's this was, and this was the first pep rally I ever went to. I wore silicone earplugs and those big over-the-ear headphones that they give our special right. needs students. Right. And it still created overwhelm. Wow. And I just like I I had a panic attack and I had to like sit in a counselor's office and just like it took I wasn't even sure if I was gonna be able to teach the rest of the day. So 
So that was pretty scary. And after that, I was like, well, there's no way in heck I'm going to chaperone a school dance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was a clever way of getting out of that requirement. Well, yeah, I know. There were a lot of things I, <laughs> I was... I mean, I you know, I got away with being pretty open about my, my autism as a right. teacher. And the best part about that is I got out of a lot of chaperoning responsibilities yes, exactly. because exactly. of my autism. Interesting. So, Another big issue that I had is I, I, I had so many issues driving to work. Right. And in the morning, my commute was about 30 minutes with no rush hour traffic. And then coming mm -hmm. home, it was an hour with rush hour traffic. Yep. And I'd never had those struggles before. I remember like driving up to Boulder to see my friends when they attended like college at CU no, no issue with that. Same thing with Fort Collins for CSU. Mm -hmm. And so it blew me away that like I couldn't regularly drive to my job. And it got so bad that the only sort of relief I had is I couldn't use the highway. And I and I don't know if it was the rush hour itself that created the overwhelm or if mm -hmm. it was just that I was so fried at the end of my work day that like mm -hmm. sitting for an hour in the car was just too much for my nervous system. Right. Um, right. But yeah, like it, the only, it was still hard no matter what, but the only thing that made it relatively doable was taking back roads, mm. um, which honestly was the same amount of time without traffic. So I was like, well, if I'm going to be in the right. car for an hour, I might as well, you know, drive. And mind you, I'm trying driving meditation and stimming and I, I'm okay. trying all sorts of coping tools to help me yeah. and, and it just wasn't working. And I didn't get any relief until I switched to another school where my commute was 20 minutes with, you know, barely right. any rush hours. So yeah, I can, I can attest for, you know, neurotypical people that nobody likes to be in stuck in rush hour traffic. It doesn't, it doesn't make you calm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, like, even though these sensory struggles at the time felt like they came out of the blue, it really took until recently for me to realize where these sensory triggers were coming from. Mm -hmm. And and I think a, a big thing that I didn't think about, because I'm thinking, like, well, my sensory, like, my environmental sensory input wasn't what was creating the problems unless I was, like, really fatigued. Social overstimulation was what was really taking my nervous system down. Interesting. And 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 I didn't realize this because I had become an extrovert in my teen and young adult years. Like I loved talking to people. I wanted mm -hmm. a job that was social. Mm -hmm. And I guess it took me being in therapy for me to realize that working with 130 students, in addition right. to coworkers, parents, and administrators, that was too many people. Okay. It was just it was it was too much social grind. Right. And and I just couldn't do it anymore. Um so I guess I kind of realized in therapy that it's okay for me to have a social job, but I need a job where the amount of people I'm working with is significantly reduced. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. I also wasn't taking introvert breaks. So, you know, during lunch, I'm I'm having lunch with my coworkers right. or how, you know, some of my, I, 
in an ideal world, I really wanted to have like a little autism student lunch group so that the kids who either mm -hmm. had sensory struggles in the cafeteria or, um, you know, had social anxiety and didn't have anybody to sit with, like we can all hang out in my classroom and we can have lunch. Right, right. And I realized I couldn't do that because my body couldn't handle that. Right. And then uh, what else was there? Um, after, you know, when the workday ended, what would I do? I would talk to students and then mm -hmm. talk to coworkers. And, right. and my therapist was like, you're not taking introvert breaks. You're not taking breaks for your nervous system to chill out. Right. And then if you think about it, then there's the, the staff happy hour. There's the staff meetings. Sure. Then there's the, the parent-teacher conferences. It's like... 12 hours of socializing with mm -hmm. a variety of people like and no and no break and i and i just didn't think i needed a break because i thought that i was an extrovert but just because i was social didn't mean that i was getting rejuvenated right. by all the socializing um then there was the chronic stress of being a new teacher which whether you're autistic or not new teaching mm -hmm. is really really difficult Right. Um, there were huge routine changes that caused a huge amount of stress on my nervous system. There was mm -hmm. the transition from being a student, a college student, to a working professional. Mm -hmm. And then there was the transition from being a student to being a teacher, which really, I think the the big transition stress in that regard was like, you are now responsible right. for 130 exactly. students when it comes to their emotional well-being, their mm -hmm. academic success, their physical safety, it's a lot of pressure. And then on top of that, when you think about school shootings, like then that's another layer of like sure. responsibility. So mm -hmm. so that that was that was a a really overwhelming transition was just feeling like I'm the one that has to care right. for all these people. Um, there was the exhaustion of an eight-hour workday. Um, I've met people uh, on the autism spectrum that are adults who have realized they can only handle a part-time job because mm. an eight-hour workday is just too right. much for their nervous right. system. Mm -hmm. um, and then COVID. COVID. Sure, throwing COVID. COVID in there. was hard for everybody, but yeah, Absolutely. like, but that was happening during my first three years of teaching. Mm -hmm. Welcome so, to teaching. Yeah. Um, you know, then I talked about before, you know, working after school events, mm -hmm. um, which I would do because it's like, well, that's what teachers do. Right. And then uh, at the second school I worked at, I ended up sponsoring the National Art Honors Society. So mm -hmm. that's, a, you know, another social commitment. Absolutely. So, you know, I guess like, I didn't realize how much all of those things, especially like when you are required to do these after school obligations mm -hmm. to do something that's longer than an eight hour workday, that puts, that's a lot of strain on anybody, not just, oh, absolutely. you know, autistic people, but it really knocks you out if you're autistic or just, absolutely. you know, highly sensitive. Um, I was talking about, you know, the anxiety about dealing with school shootings, like, and that had a huge impact on my sensory processing because I was just extremely on guard of right. like, I hear something. What does that mean? Like, right. 
So, you know, so I'm just not, terrified yeah. of like, how is this going to affect me or not that we had a school shootings, but we had to be ready for them. And the, oh, there's, yeah. there's protocols that we had to put in place and we practice the, the lockdown practices, you know, and yeah. that, those can be, you know, and we're not always, um, told ahead of time of when those are going to occur. Yeah. Um, let's see, you know, so one of the issues I developed because of that fear of school shootings is I couldn't be in a crowd of students. So during passing period, like I just had way too much anxiety, like walking through crowds of students because I didn't want to be stuck in a crowd of students if there was a bad incident that happened. Mm -hmm. So I, so I learned that I had to, like, if I was going to go take care of something in the main office or meet with a coworker, I had to wait until passing period was over. So I didn't feel, you know, bad about, um, being in that crowd. But, but, you know, I think that those issues honestly, like brought up issues that were already, already there. Right. Um, and, and they just got sent over the edge. Um, the other thing, my first year of teaching, I, in addition to my 30 hours in the morning and an hour going back, I had mm -hmm. a, a semi long distance relationship with my, at the time boyfriend, he's now my husband. Um, he was going to school in Fort Collins, which was about an hour and a half away from where I live. So right. then I would commute an hour. So being in the car, like it got to the point, the, the driving had such a strain on my nervous system that like he was maybe like two months from graduating and I called him and I said, I can't take it anymore. Like I was crying and I was yeah, like, yeah. I was like, I, my body cannot handle this commute. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and then that made it hard for him because then he had to come down more. But like it, I just like I, my body, I, I guess, because right. I, I have really bad vestibular overwhelm. I can't be in a car that much. Right. Um, and, and then I did part-time work with a startup company that supported autistic adults with, you know, with professional success, which I don't know how I yeah. made that work my first exactly. year of teaching on top of COVID. But yeah, it's hmm. just all of those things really like were not good for my nervous system. Right. Um, you know, then there was the fatigue of being a teacher created sensory intolerances. So, so if I was rested, like at the beginning of the school year, no sensory intolerances. And then it's about halfway in the semester, maybe like a week before fall break, then my sensory issues just got bad, mm -hmm. you know, cause I, my body was just ready to have a week off. I'm sure. Um, I talked about this earlier. The sensory struggles would come on suddenly, take a long time to recover from. Mm -hmm. um, I had extreme anxiety. I had intrusive suicidal thoughts. I'll, I'm going to talk about this more in a future episode about autism and suicide. I, I was not wanting to kill myself. Right. This, I call it an intrusive suicidal thought because the overwhelm in my body was so bad that mm -hmm. my body's only response to deal with it was end your life. Wow. And and I've heard other people with autism that struggle with suicidal thoughts say the same thing that like mm -hmm. when you're when you have chronic sensory issues that hit a distressing level, like your body just instinctively goes to that place of I want to end it. Right. Um 
So, which, you know, which is scary when you are a person who does not want to kill yourself. And you're like, why am I having these suicidal thoughts? Um, in terms of physical health, I had a burning chest, the jangling nervous system feeling. I had, I couldn't walk. Um, none of my tools in my toolbox were working. Um, I felt like I was the, on the edge of a meltdown at every second. It, it was awful. So I'm like basically doing research online, trying to find something to give me any sort of relief or advice on sensory processing challenges for adults, which is uh, how I found the Star Institute, which again is in Denver, Colorado. Um, they had so many articles about sensory processing struggles from the perspective of an adult, and I felt seen. Um, hang on, before and, before we get into hang on before we get into the Star Institute, because I know you're going to get into that, and that's going to be great. Just want to mention right now, if you feel like you're having suicidal thoughts or that you need to reach out, please call nine eight eight, which is the National Suicide Crisis Helpline. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and I'll also add that. Uh, I, when I was working with the Star Institute, I did tell them about that. And the Star Institute cannot support like suicidal thoughts. So if you are experiencing suicidal thoughts or whether whether they're, you know, intrusive, you don't want to kill yourself, but they're happening or you really have serious thoughts of committing suicide, go to an inpatient mental health clinic. Do not the Star Institute is really there to address the sensory processing struggles, not, right. you know, yeah, right. basically. So, you know, I, I think the other thing that's really hard about, you know, having these sensory processing struggles as an adult, there's there's so few resources for adults. There's so many resources for kids. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I could find something that spoke to me as an adult was like so relieving. Good. So I, when I called the Star Institute and booked an appointment, I cried on the phone. Wow! Because I, I felt hopeful. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, it was, it was awesome. And, and how old were you? Uh, at the time, I was twenty-seven. Okay, good to know. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Okay, so what was the, um, what was the process like for the assessment? What was that like? Uh, so I had to book five appointments with them. The first appointment was an informational interview about my experience with sensory overwhelm. Um, and the second and third appointments were a variety of sensory assessments that tested what sensory experiences were pleasant and agitating. I did have to take time off from work just because it, it's like an all, not all day, but at right. least three hours, I believe. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, is, this seems pretty intensive. How long did it take? And you said, what, two to three hours? Uh, I mean, it could have even been longer than that. But like, you definitely have to take the day off from work if you're mm -hmm. gonna if you're gonna do this assessment. Mm -hmm. And, and they tested all sorts of different things. So for visual, I had to hold up like things that lit up and spin in front of my face and, and tell them like how it made me feel. For auditory, I had to listen to music at different volumes. Part of that uh, was about figuring out my overwhelm tolerance, and the other part of it was determining my processing speed. Um, for smell, I had to smell different types of fragrances. 
For touch, I had to feel different objects with rough, smooth, and soft textures. I hated the vestibular stuff, mm. which really indicated to me that th that was a big struggle. Mm. Um, I had to, so basically I had to stand next to a, or no, my back was behind a door and I had to touch my toes and then lift up and touch the door with my hands without turning around as fast as I can. Mm. I hated that. I had to jump on a trampoline. I had to spin in a circle, um, which, by the way, were all things I would have no problem doing as a kid. Like, I remember right. Interesting. As, as a kid, I could spend hours on a swing set. Now, as an adult, I can't be on a swing for, like, a minute without getting motion sick. Interesting. So, so yeah, it, it just changes. Um, for proprioceptive, um, I had to get, like, tight squeezes or I had to have, like, objects on top of me that would apply deep pressure so I, I could give feedback on how it felt. Um, there were assessments that determined my hand-eye coordination, my spatial processing, and my auditory processing abilities. I remember having to repeat things that I heard from a recording and create a complex design with basic shapes. Mm. Um, there weren't any assessments that I had to do for taste. I do have a fear of vomiting, so I I would imagine that I have an aversion to taste, as most autistic people do. Mm. Um, so I did tell them about that. So what I took away from the whole thing is that my biggest sensory overwhelm challenges were vestibular, visual, and auditory. And I would have never known that without getting an assessment. And, and it totally made sense why driving was so awful for me, mm -hmm. um, because that is a vestibular challenge. Mm -hmm. But then my sensory soothers were tactile and proprioceptive. Okay. So it was really good to know that because if I was having a, a, a difficult sensory experience, then I knew, okay, I need something soft or I need something with heavy pressure to bring me down. I see. Um, and then I also found out that I have some auditory processing challenges, which I was shocked that I had, but I guess I've had a lot of feedback from people that I'm a slow speaker, mm. and and I don't know. I don't personally think I'm a slow speaker, right. but I but I'm I'm... I'm I do tend to slow down and pause a lot, or I might... Or I might like, as I'm talking, lose my train of thought and then I'm pausing mm. because I'm trying to remember it. But I, I remember at the school we worked at, our instructional coach uh, had made a comment that she felt like I wasn't following her guidance or she didn't feel like I was hearing her. And I'm like, I okay. totally am hearing you. And I guess it just, it had to do with a, a processing challenge. Mm -hmm. um, so then what they did, I don't know how this, helped my sensory processing issues, but they made me listen to music at a specific volume with a CD that they loaned me. And I had to do it for a week. And it was something about how the music came into each ear and the volume that it came in was supposed to improve my auditory processing. To be honest, I have no idea if it made a difference. Mm -hmm. I, I get the feeling that I wish I would have had it longer because I just didn't feel like the time I had it was enough time. Mm. Um, and, and they said, too, that when you do this, 
you cannot do anything else. Oh, I see. You can't, you know, you can't multitask. You can't do dishes. You can't go for a walk. You can't mm -hmm. drive. You have to sit still. Now, they did say that I could color in an adult coloring book, but, like, you're sitting there for, like, an hour listening to a variety of 70s and 80s hit songs. Interesting. Um, but, yeah, so so I don't know how it worked, but that's what I had to do, and I put my faith in it. So then the fourth and fifth sessions were about exploring sensory tools, practices, and accommodations that I could use to reduce my overwhelm. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have these in the short show notes. These are, like, life-changing tools. Okay. Um, one of them is the touch points vibrating wristbands. It's a, it looks like a watch. You put it on the, the bottom part of your wrist where like the palm of your hand faces and the, the wristband will vibrate at four different frequencies or at least I think three frequencies. And it's supposed to prevent meltdowns and, and extreme overwhelm through vibrating. And it has worked. I, I can see that because it's a distracting behavior. Or... Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I swear by that. That that was a life-changing thing that I, I purchased. Now, I will say uh, I, I worked with a woman um, at this autism startup organization who had autism and ADHD. She was really curious to try the wristbands, and she couldn't stand it because mm. um, she didn't like the sound of the vibrating wristbands. That okay. that wasn't an issue for me, but and it wasn't so much that it was agitating. She just said with her ADHD, it was really distracting. Mm. So I guess that's a, a con to the vibrating wristbands, but I totally sure. think it's worth it's worth buying. I also bought a Lycra swing um, because it, it gives really good proprioceptive pressure on your spine. And that's where the source of all your overwhelm is. So I love the Lycra Swing. It also gave me a lot of nostalgia from like being in a Lycra Swing when I was a kid. And I haven't done this yet, but I started taking aerial yoga classes. And I was like, oh, can I do these aerial yoga poses in my Lycra Swing? And they were like, yeah. So I'm going to try doing like restorative yoga poses in my Lycra Swing, which I'm super excited about. Um, I also have a weighted blanket. Um, and then, yeah, so I would say those are the top three things. And a lot of the sensory tools that I was exploring, Star already had. So it wasn't like, you know, go spend a bunch of money and and find out. Like, And that's what I really loved. Like, I remember being there and, and sitting in a Lycra swing and being like, oh, my God, this feels so good. I want one. Um, and, and I ended up getting one for my birthday that was about $400 off Etsy. Um, and then, and then that was the fourth session. So then the fifth session was try these objects, you know, for at least a week and then report what you noticed. Okay. And then if I needed more sessions, I, I could get more sessions. But I guess from that point, we felt, we felt pretty good about what we learned and, and I just went from there. Okay. So that, that goes to, you know, how were these assessments? Were they helpful to you? I definitely think it was helpful. Um, 
I had a significantly better understanding of my body and what it struggled with. And you'd think, you know, I got diagnosed with autism when I was two. You'd think you'd know the way that your body works when you're diagnosed early in life, but you don't. And part of it is like you don't have that body awareness when you're a toddler, but then your body also changes when you're an adult. And then if you're told you're cured of autism, you don't build that awareness of like, what are your body struggles? So right. I right. and I will also say the other thing that I really loved, I was talked to in an age appropriate way. The service was and felt like it was tailored to an adult rather than only designed for kids. I remember when I was 11, I I did some sort of autism assessment. I have no idea what it was for, maybe like a research thing. Mm -hmm. It was really not appropriate for my age. It was like, you know, take random objects and play make-believe and, right. you know, crash toy cars. And as a preteen, I'm like, this is stupid. Right. So I, I appreciated that everything that I did never felt childish. Um, That's good. That's good. And... Ugh. Yeah. And so then then the last thing that we talked about was, you know, how do I accommodate for sensory processing accommodations in the workplace? And really, they said, really just focus on it from the autism perspective. You don't even mm -hmm. need to tell them you have sensory processing disorder. Just say that you have autism. Right. Um, and I guess like really my sensory accommodations had to come down more to you know, I needed to opt out of certain required uh, tasks. So at the school uh, you and I worked at, like we teachers were required to do like at least 20 hours of chaperoning with like football games and mm -hmm. school dances mm -hmm. and field trips and all that. And uh, and I, I opted out of most of them. And we right, did a right. really good job talking about like, well, these are the things you can do. And and I, and you got to make it really clear, like, you're not opting out as a way to, you know, just sit in your classroom and grade because administrators will never support you to do that. So right. I, I had to make it very clear that I want to help the school. Right. I just medically can't do these activities. So what can I do instead? And um, And then the other thing that was great is like, whatever you struggle with as a faculty member, you're able to support students with, and that's mm. a, a certain niche need. So mm. I, I didn't, I didn't feel stigmatized. Um, but yeah, there, there was a lot of like, how does this affect my, my daily life? Um, it really affected what safe spaces I needed to access in my job mm. and, and who was nearby or whether that was, you know, so that they didn't hear me have a meltdown or or uh, who could right. be there for support. Um, but I, I didn't really need accommodations when it came to like, I need a weighted blanket or okay. I needed an eye mask. I will say, if I was having a bad sensory day, my students knew. Mm. So I think that really the bigger struggle was how do I tell my students that I'm having a, a bad sensory day um, and, and what do I need from them so that I'm more accommodated, which is really hard to ask anybody under the age of 18. Cause right. they're just 
hyperactive and and think they're, about yeah. themselves. They're not. Um, no, and and I think like even with little kids, like even if they have the best intentions, like they're just their kids are kids are right. sensory overstimulating. So, but I remember like. I had a student who, you know, wanted to play his own music and everybody's like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to play music too. So I had to disclose my sensory processing struggles to mm. just say like, hey, I need it to be quiet because I didn't have control. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, usually or or uh, if I wore the vibrating wristbands, like students would hear it and they'd be like, mm. what What's are that? you wearing? Yeah. What's so that? so, you know, it's like. I I didn't have a problem talking about it, but that but that is another layer of like you have to think about like how do I make my classroom sensory friendly and mm -hmm. how does this affect the other kids and and if I'm having a bad sensory day, what do they need to do to not send me over the edge? Which you right, right. you you can't honestly if you're having a bad sensory day, just take a sick day. It's better than putting yeah. all of your hope and control into a bunch of kids. Which is not going to happen. It's okay. not going to happen. Yeah. So what did you notice after the assessment about your sensory struggles? Um, so my sensory struggles did not get better because I had the tools. Um, my sensory processing struggles persisted throughout my entire teaching career. And they still do, you know, to this day, even though I'm not currently working as a teacher, but I have a better understanding why my sensory struggles occur, and uh, I'm making better and healthier choices to deal with the sensory triggers in all sorts of settings. And I have a way better self-care practice at home. One of the things that I started doing was being way more mindful of my screen time. Um, and then the other thing I started doing was like, I started to tune in like if I was driving home from work, when I felt like I wanted to listen to music and when my body mm. did not want to listen to music, because when you get in your car, your automatic reaction is turn on the radio. Right. And I didn't realize that was escalating my nervous system. So it's mm. really important to have quiet breaks. So, okay. you know, if you have control, like not playing the radio or not watching YouTube, like mm -hmm. those are important choices. Okay. Um, and I, I had talked about this earlier, but yeah, like I didn't realize how much social stimulation really wore out my nervous system. Cause I just always thought of, you know, the seven senses and really those were minorly taxing on my nervous system. Mm -hmm. I think the social overstimulation and the social fatigue and the compassion fatigue was what created all the other sensory problems. And it's that whole idea of a, a window of tolerance. And it's the difference between having tools to endure a tough sensory situation versus increasing your nervous system's ability to handle stressful situations. Absolutely. So do you have advice for people for who are struggling with sensory overwhelm? If you know you have sensory processing struggles, brainstorm ways that you will experience those triggers at work and and find accommodations to circumvent that. Um, so Brad and I had recently gone to the Kennedy Krieger Neurodiversity in the Workplace Conference, and one of the speakers there had talked about that when you're interviewing for a job, get a tour of the organization, 
so that when you do get hired, you can come on your first day prepared with a list of accommodations mm. rather than getting there the first day and having all of these, you know, sensory struggles. Um, and so if you struggle with overwhelm at pep rallies, volunteer to supervise students that also have the same sensory processing struggles. Mm. There was like a small group of teachers at the previous school that I was at where we all got together. We we hung out in a dark classroom and had like 10 students. It was mm -hmm. great. Now, there are issues with that because uh, what what the school used to do is all of the sensory kids would hang out in the library, mm -hmm. but they had no system of screening what kids had actual sensory processing struggles. We had a lot of kids who would lie mm. or we would have a kid who had legitimate sensory processing struggles and would bring their friends. Mm -hmm. And then it would just be this like ridiculous social hangout. Right. That was because they didn't want to go to the pep rally. Right. And so it 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 defeated the purpose of the quiet room. So you had all these sensory kids who just, you know, paced and had panic attacks in the corner of the library because mm -hmm. And and I'm talking like none of these kids were quiet. Like they're on their phones and the phone's loud and and they're talking to their friends and it it's it's all super loud. Right. <laughs> and so I I made a complaint because I was like that you guys need a better um uh what do you call it? Um vetting system. Right. And so I think that the it was the counseling team and the special ed team, I think they had better communication about discussing like, okay, if the kid has an IEP or a 504, exactly. for sure they're coming in. Exactly. And, if you don't have an IEP, they, you're out of here or a well, 504. Yeah. And so I think they were talking about like putting a sticker on uh, the kid's um, student IDs so then they can easily see like, all right, you're okay. in, you're not in. Sure. Um, and then the other thing that had to happen was we had to come up with a whole alternate place um, for for right. all the kids to go to. And mm. they had to lock the library because, you know, all these it, kids for at least right. a year were like, oh, yep, this is the place we know to go to. It was the hangout. And yeah. Then, yeah. So so that that is a, a, a big issue that I think schools need to address if they are going to provide a, a sensory mm -hmm. safe space for students. Um, and then anyway, when, when you are disclosing, like I cannot participate in this uh, activity. So unless, if you're not required to do it, then don't do it. You know, you don't need to disclose it. But if you have to, like a pep rally, then say, I don't wanna do this, but I wanna be involved. What can I do instead? You right. know? Operate alternatives, right? Oh yeah, I mean, we had so many coworkers that you know would would drop their kids off, go back to their classroom and grade, and it pissed off our administration. So they don't want that. So you got to make right. it clear that you're not using your medical need as an excuse to mm -hmm. you know get out of the 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 need that administrators are asking you to do to manage the school. Right. Um. Really think about the age group that you are teaching and how the behaviors of that age group will exacerbate that overwhelm. I had a coworker who's taught like all three grade levels and she was like, there's no way you could handle teaching elementary students. 
But there are some, you know, autistic adults who love teaching elementary and preschool. So it's important to recognize that, you know, with a certain age group of kids, there's going to be a certain type of sensory stimuli than a different type of age group. Right. I personally felt like high school, I didn't feel like high school students created a lot of uh, sensory overwhelm from their behavior. I mean, really, the worst thing they do is talk. Right. And, you know, there's not a lot of, like, giggling and there's not a lot of, like, right. smelly meth. They're pretty good about cleaning up after themselves. So it it worked for me. Okay. Um. You want to think about your lesson plans, instruction time, classroom management strategies, and cleanup routines in a way that accommodate for your sensory needs. You got to take care of yourself first. If it benefits you, then it will benefit everyone. Very similar to if you teach to the IEP, it benefits right. everybody. Right. Um, you know, how much screen time is involved for you and the students? So, for example, if you are asking students to do a project that involves them using Canvas as a, an example of an online platform, well, guess what? Now you're going to be spending massive amount of time on the computer grading those projects. And if you right. have visual exhaustion, that's not going to work. So maybe, you know, paper projects are better. And the same thing with lesson planning. Um, you know, if it works better for you to do it on paper because you don't have to look at a screen, mm -hmm. you know, that works. Um, taking sensory breaks during passing periods. I started doing this like my last semester before I quit teaching. It was really needed. Like uh, I, I had to just sit in a closet with the lights off and just mm -hmm. take some deep breaths and regroup myself and and sometimes teachers can't do that because they want you to watch the hallways. But if you have a medical need, like that's what you need to do to to get the job done, do it. Um, you know, and, and also like you, just because your department eats lunch together doesn't mean that you need to eat lunch with them. Like if right, you right. need to have quiet time in your car or in a closet because that's your sensory break, take mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And tell, you know, and tell your, tell your department so that they don't think, you know, that you don't like them. Or if they're right. going to talk about important, you know, department stuff, make sure that there's a designated day that that's communicated right. or, you know, talk about it over email or have a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And it doesn't you know? have to be over lunch. Lunch is a, is a time for teachers to, to not be involved in school, school stuff. Well, and... Slightly off tangent, um, I, I, my department chair at my uh, previous school had said, you know, oh, well, we don't talk about work at lunch. But she and my coworkers had talked about lunch um, during, you know, multiple lunches. Right. And so it was this double standard of like, mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to talk about lunch, but you and everybody else in our department can. Right, right. So the way that we solved that was we had a designated day mm -hmm. where if if she had all important um, announcements right. to share with our department, it was always going to be on Monday. So non-negotiable, everybody right. had to have lunch together on Monday. Okay. And then Tuesday through Friday, there was flexibility of, you know, if people need to grade or if they need to run errands or if they need to take an introvert break or 
Or if they do want to eat lunch together, there was flexibility for all of those options. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think if there's going to be a system of communicating to teachers important information about the school or something related to the department, either don't do it during lunch or have a designated time so that it's not this wishy-washy gray area of sometimes we're going to talk about work during lunch, but sometimes we don't. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work for people with right. autism. Consistency, right? Consistency. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, modify your room to be sensory friendly. Um, I think a lot more neurotypical teachers are bringing fairy lights in, comfortable seating, um, and that really depends on the content and where you share your, whether you share your classroom with another teacher. Right. Um, as somebody who teaches art, I couldn't turn my lights off. I couldn't use fairy lights. Mm-hmm. It's a very utilitarian classroom, so the lights had to be on. And that really wasn't uh, an issue for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there are just certain classrooms you just can't you can't modify. But I think that that's going to be important if you're a teacher candidate thinking about, you know, what you're going to teach and whether or not there's flexibility. And And then there's. Yeah. And if you have your own classroom or not. Well, and and for anybody who's not an art teacher, there's also something called art on a cart, which basically means you don't have a classroom. You just have a a cart of art supplies and you walk it over to to a homeroom teacher's classroom and and you're teaching out of the cart, which really, I think only ever really happens in elementary and middle schools, but it happens, it happens everywhere. Oh yeah. Well, if you have sensory processing struggles, do not, do not take a position where you have to teach art on a cart. It sucks. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) But the, just to go into modifying um, your room. So one thing that just annoys me is the, the, the stark white walls and the fluorescent lighting. So one thing that I did to modify my room, and I had permission to do this, and I had the ability to do this, was to um, paint the walls in calming colors. So instead of that stark white, I had grays. Um, And then for the fluorescent lightings, we were able to unscrew some of them, right? So it's not glaring bright all the time. And there's also other things that you can get from Amazon where you can um, put a magnet on top of the this um, the the light itself to to mute it the color and they have mm-hmm. different colors where you could do this and it just is something that you can place over the uh, fluorescent lighting itself. Yeah, you can also do like uh, sheets, like like silk curtains. Like right. That's that's another thing you can do. Um, yeah, I think like as long as you talk to your administrator or oh, brainstorm ideas with your coworkers. I know uh, Waldorf schools paint their their walls. They they actually have different colored walls based on like the age of the students. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so that that's interesting. The other thing is don't have a lot of posters. Um, mm. I mean, you want to have some posters because you don't want if you have nothing, it's going to look like a prison cell. Right. But if you have too many posters, like that's overwhelming mm-hmm. for you. It's overwhelming for neurodiverse students. It's super distracting to neurotypical students. So, you know, have a little feng shui with your that's, with your wall decorations. Okay, that's awesome because um, when I left teaching and the newer teacher got my room and I came back to visit, you know, they said, hey, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, 
you know, the, the students that returned to my room that used to have use came into the room and said, wow, this is a lot less cluttered. Oh, interesting. So, there you go. I, I like to have stuff on my walls, but you know, I taught, <laughs> I taught history and everything had a purpose, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So then take notes of all the sensory triggers that show up in your day and then present them to a therapist and see if there is a commonality or, or, you know, especially if you're working with an occupational therapist for sensory processing challenges. But, you know, again, like I, I would talk to my therapist about my struggles at my job and she was the one that was able to pick up that I was getting overstimulated. Mm. I didn't pick up on that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, having a log of like, mm. you know, uh, which I guess is hard, but, you know, I think the more conversations you have with a support person about your mm. overwhelm, the more that you start paying attention to it in your in your environment. Right. And that uh, having a log is really helpful to manage and anticipate meltdowns, especially as a parent. You try to make note of, OK, what, what are the triggers? And sometimes the only way to find what the triggers are is to create kind of like a journal. Yeah, yeah. Um, be patient and compassionate with sensory triggers that are new. Any sort of shame that you feel for new sensory triggers, that comes from internalized ableism. Mm. And I think it also comes from like this societal belief of like a perfect, flawless body that's healthy and sure. looks young and whatever. Sure. And, and the way that you combat that internalized ableism and that tendency to mask is to just show love towards yourself. Mm. And that you will overcome it with the right kind of support. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, finding a, a, a safe sensory space in your school. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it should not be a, a shared space with students. So, you know, right. if, if, a, if students with special needs in the special needs department have their own room, that should be their room, not your room. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. It sense. should not be a communal space like a teacher's lounge. It should not be an administrator's space, nor should it be your instructional coach's space. Um, right. I was recommended to, you know, use my car. A car isn't even really a safe space because people can see into it. Right. And and also like. You know, if it's if it's a cold day or a hot day and I need to turn my car on to get some air in, like then the vibration of the car overwhelms me. So mm. a car doesn't work. What I found helpful for me as an art teacher was the storage closet was the best place for me mm -hmm. to just decompress. And and it really has to be a space that's close by because, you know, like sense. I said, like I needed I needed a place that I could take an introvert break during my passing period. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, if you have your own classroom, like, sure, it could be that space. But, like, get out of your classroom. Like, the last thing you want to do when you're having a bad sensory day is, like, stay in the room that you are spending in all day. Right. That's true. Um, Take a sick day if you know your overwhelm is coming on. Or take a sick day the day of or the day after a long event. So... What I learned on parent-teacher conference night or back-to-school night, I had to take the day off the day after or the day of mm. um, because it was just going to be way too much uh, stimuli. Um, and there are a lot of after-school events. So, you know, be preventative 
right. rather than, you know, set yourself up for failure. Um, wear comfortable clothing. And for me, that was really important with pants and shoes because you're moving a lot. So right. if you have really comfy pants and shoes, don't wear high heels. <laughs> don't wear chunky boot heels because mm -hmm. that's not good for your body. Um, if this is possible, pick a school close to home so that you don't have a long commute time. You can take lunch breaks at home. Right. If you, you know, you can go home and take a break before parent-teacher conferences. Mm -hmm. And kind of alluding to things I talked about earlier, you got to pay attention to your sensory routine in your car mm. um, because there's a lot of choices that we make that can actually overstimulate us when we're in a car. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm a big fan of driving meditations. Like, okay. you know, if if you have a long commute, make sure that you're doing something that's soothing to your nervous system. Right. And usually driving meditations, like do a guided meditation you know mm -hmm. med meditating in your car is not a jesus take the wheel moment right <laughs> um sure. you know having a really good self-care routine that is about sensory deprivation um to sensory soothing at home if you can do it at work that's even better and i mm -hmm. recommend at least an hour and uh i read i read a lot of articles that say like you know don't play video games because that's not sensory soothing you really want it to be, you know, something where your body has room to breathe. So that could okay. be taking a bath with bath salts. It can be um, laying in a dark room and taking a nap with headphones on and a weighted mm -hmm. blanket. Like, and and be consistent with it because your body really needs that break. It's a non-negotiable need for for adults that have SPD. Okay. Um, the other thing, uh, for art teachers specifically, do not avoid teaching certain materials because you have sensory discomfort with them. So I hate charcoal and pastel. I hate the chalkiness. Um, I hate the squeakiness. Okay. Um, I remember like we were teaching when I was student teaching, we had a, a charcoal project with fifth graders and they all got charcoal pencils and the squeaking from all the charcoal pencils with the heavy pressure, it was like nails on a chalkboard. And I was that's, like, from that day forward, I was like, I'm never teaching charcoal. Yeah, that's interesting. But, yeah. but then your students ask you, they're like, I want to learn about charcoal. I want to learn about pastels. Then they get mad at you because you didn't teach right. them because you have sensory issues. So, so mm. don't be afraid of using those materials. Instead, make sure that you're wearing earplugs or you're wearing gloves. Mm -hmm. So that you can work with those materials. And okay. if they ask, like, tell them. Because if you're modeling how you cope with it, then mm -hmm. you're ultimately supporting your neurodiverse students on how to work with that material. Right. That's good, too. Good point. Um, and then, you know, request teaching lessons or classes during student teaching that do not trigger sensory challenges. So, for example, with, you know, teaching art, like... If you have like tactile defensiveness, don't student teach ceramics. If you uh, are auditorily sensitive, don't student teach jewelry or sculpture. Like know what know what your limits are, mm -hmm. and know like what you can kind of work with. Um, and then I talked about this earlier. Don't 
don't don't do art on a cart. Um, right. That's going to create. It, well, but the thing is, like, I think you can have a lot more flexibility of like picking your job. Like, it just comes down to asking in the interview, like, what right. is your yeah. classroom situation? Right. And you know, do I have whether to share you're a classroom. Well, yeah, yeah, that that too. Um, mm -hmm. But but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's easy to know. And then if you, if you know that that's it, don't then don't take the job. Yeah, good point. All right, okay. so to my last question after this giant dump of info, right. um, based on my experience, your experience, and the content we talked about in this episode, what is your advice for neurodiverse teachers or neurodiverse employees that deal with sensory processing disorder? I think it goes down to things that we're talking about in this podcast every episode, which is learn about yourself, take the time and invest in understanding your needs, your wants, um, how your body responds to certain situations, how your mind responds to certain situations, get an assessment if that is all possible, have the tools to, um, first of all, understand what you are going through, what your triggers are, and then have a plan in place to figure out how to uh, mitigate some of those things so you're not stressing yourself out, I mm -hmm. think is the biggest thing, is to know thyself. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about with classroom management, um, the way that you re redirect students' attention. Like, do you do it in a quiet way? Because, you know, nobody likes a teacher that screams over the, the talking energy. Um, right, but I right, think that, sure. that that can be really overwhelming for teachers with sensory processing disorder because it's like you have to elevate the sensory stimuli in order to stop the sensory stimuli. Mm. And I think that that comes down to first day expectations and not that you need to tell your students you have SPD, but, you know, right. you state early on, like, this is the routine and we're going to mm -hmm. do this with mm -hmm. as minimal noise as possible. And ultimately, it does help your students especially little kids. Right. So, you know, so you're setting yourself up for an advantage by literally planning ahead and saying, all right, like, mm -hmm. how can I cla manage my classroom in a way that meets my sensory needs? How can I lesson plan in a way that meets my sensory needs? Right. That is 100% in your control. And, you know, if you do end up connecting with other neurodiverse teachers, such as myself, you know, you can reach out to us and say like, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? Or what what works for you? Right. Because, you then, know, yeah. And then negotiating that with your administrator. Yeah. Right. Oh, Figuring yeah. I mean, I think an instructional coach and an administrator can give you really good tips um, because, you know, regardless of whether or not somebody understands your sensory processing needs. I don't think people want to yell. I think yelling gives a certain precedent to your students of your personality as a teacher. Right. And Not I think good classroom I management. Think, yeah, exactly. And I think uh honestly the best classroom management strategies from veteran teachers are going to be the ones that are sensory friendly. Yeah. And I, I would that. say like, you know, talk to the SPED team. Talk sure. to your special education department because Mm -hmm. If anybody's going to have good advice on like managing a classroom of neurodiverse people, it's going to be the caseworkers for sure. Absolutely. 
All right, we have finally come to the end of this episode where we have talked about causes and symptoms of SPD, how SPD impacts your physical and mental health, triggers for sensory overwhelm, SPD in relation to trauma, how to get for an assessment for SPD. And the next week episode, we're going to continue the conversation about autism and SPD as far as treatment goes and how SPD is impacting socializing and the resources for adults. You can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode, which will be on our website, which is mm -hmm. understandingautism.info, mm -hmm. as well as all of our wonderful social media platforms. Absolutely. Subs subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, all that good stuff. Like, mm -hmm. subscribe, and leave a comment. Also, you can listen to our podcast episodes on our website, understandingautism.info. If you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. Bye.